Just a quick warning before we start, this episode contains some adult themes and language. The other day, I went to see what's considered to be the hottest musical on Broadway. It's called A Strange Loop by Michael R. Jackson. It was nominated for 11 Tony Awards, and it won two of them this month in some of the most important categories, Best New Musical and Best Book for Michael's original script. A Strange Loop is definitely out to push boundaries. There's this one pretty unforgettable scene where the main character, he's black and gay, and he's dressed up like a preacher, and he's leading the sermon on stage. And it's got gospel music, and the audience is invited to clap along. But the sermon is really homophobic. It's about how AIDS is a punishment for the sin of being gay. It's very uncomfortable. But the music is so catchy that when the audience is invited to clap along, a bunch of people did start clapping. And the rest of us were looking around, totally bewildered. I asked Michael why he'd written it that way. Yeah, so tell me about that, because you kind of, as an audience member, you turn around and you think, oh, my, or I turned, ar- turned around and thought, wow, people are clapping. <laughs> yeah. And I, that's the thing. Well, they're invited to. And I, yeah. I invite the audience to have an authentic response. If you don't feel comfortable clapping, you don't have to. But mm-hmm. if you want to clap along, you should. And I find that moment to be thrilling because the audience has to really check in with themselves about what to do. And then they start looking to their neighbor to see what they're doing. And then their neighbor is looking to them. And then maybe those two responses don't match. Yeah. And and then some people are mad that white people are clapping. Some white people feel nervous that black people aren't clapping. Some, or <laughs> there are people who are not white or black who don't know what the hell is going on. Like it's a mix of everything. And that mix yeah. and that confusion is what it's like to be usher. Usher, who Michael just mentioned, is the main character in the show. And he's having a hard time. He's struggling to wade through these mixed messages that society has given him. But somehow, Michael has made that struggle really entertaining to watch. Blackness, queerness, fighting back to fill this all-white space with a portrait. Today, we talk to Michael about a strange loop, about being black and queer on Broadway and about how he managed so successfully to pull audiences into Usher's mind. Then we talk with Imogen West Knights, who spoke with dozens of restaurant workers in Copenhagen. Copenhagen is a mecca of fine dining, and workers there have come from all over the world thinking they'd learn from the best. But instead, they describe a culture of physical and verbal abuse, overwork, and exhaustion. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. So what is a strange loop? It's actually a neuroscientific term, and it's a way of thinking about identity. For Michael, it's when how you feel on the inside isn't how the mainstream culture sees you on the outside. And then you just keep going in a loop trying to figure out which version is really you. It's also this metamusical. I'm barely scraping by. My discontentment comes in many shapes and sizes. This musical is about a guy who is black and gay and works as an usher on Broadway's The Lion King. 
and he's writing a musical about a guy who's black and gay and works as an usher on The Lion King. And of course, it's written by Michael R. Jackson, a guy who, you get the idea. And Usher is struggling. His ideas are constantly getting rejected. He's getting rejected. But his biggest problem isn't a lack of money or that he can't find a boyfriend. It's self-doubt. Self-doubt has been personified in the musical and cast as six different actors on stage. All of them are also black and queer. And so you have, you know, thoughts who portray his daily self-loathing. That's a character name. I have some time to kill. I thought I'd stop by to remind you just how truly worthless you are. And then there's a, a character called Sympathetic Ear who sort of gives him some good advice at a crucial moment. But there's like a character called Financial Faggotry and, and many others that are just sort of there to represent these like struggles that he's sort of embroiled in as he's trying to write this musical about someone writing a musical. As you've probably gathered, Michael isn't shy. And if the language he just used makes you uncomfortable, you should know that Strange Loop uses far stronger, including racial slurs. That's because it wants to show that Usher's perception of himself has been shaped in large part by a world that is hostile to him. He's internalized these slurs, and he's grappling with it. So Usher is trying to write his musical, but he's also trying to exercise his demons. He's trying to have a better relationship with his religious parents. He's trying to be daring and creative. He's trying to date, which everyone, including his doctor, tells him he needs to do more of. There are three things that Usher has to give up before he can believe in himself by the end of the show. And one of them is an oppressive mainstream gay culture. I asked Michael why that was so important. Yeah, so, you know, early in the musical, Usher goes to his doctor, who um, is, again, an exaggerated version of an interaction that I had with my doctor when I was much younger, who was sort of bewildered by why I wasn't sexually active and, like, just really out there being a, a young gay in the city. And the answer to that was because I felt really lost in what I term in the musical Gayville. Mm. It was like the sort of white gay run social scene. And like you either were in or you were out. Or that's what it felt like. And you get a lot of negative body image stuff because Usher's fat and I was fat. And like it just was very confusing. And so, but in the meanwhile, you're supposed to be, everybody's supposed to be so, you know, out and proud and sex positive and all these things. And yet you're constantly hearing, no, 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 I won't date you. No, 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 I won't sleep with you. No, 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 you're not the right size, height, color, blah, 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 blah. Everybody has a preference, but somehow that preference is never you. The second thing Usher has to give up is Tyler Perry. You know Tyler Perry, right? He's the guy who made all those Medea movies. He's Black too, and he's made a fortune off his films and TV shows, which feature almost entirely Black casts. Michael and a lot of others think that his work uses really tired tropes and that it caricaturizes Black people. There's very little nuance. And he's somebody who has often sort of held up as like a real Black success story and somebody who other Black artists and writers should really sort of aspire to be and look up to. And in the musical, Usher, and I guess by extension me Mm -hmm. a real critical 
response to his actual work. What Usher has to give up is comparing himself to Tyler Perry because he doesn't even want to make that kind of work. And the final thing Usher has to give up is his inner white girl. That's an alter ego inspired by the music of artists like Liz Fair, Tori Amos, Joni Mitchell. White girls can do anything. What does she stand for? So the inner white girl is is a couple things, but she's mainly an abstract concept that has to deal with Usher's sort of love for these like white female singer-songwriters who had this ability within their work to really show a full range of emotions and and expression that he feels as a Black artist and as a Black man that he's not sort of afforded the space to express. And, you know, because there's this ex- there's all these expectations that you're going to be like the next Tyler Perry or something and not like the next self-made whatever you want to be, you know, there's no stereotype of like black men as being shy and introspective. Do you know what I mean? And like, and so he takes this this sort of both strength from these like white female singer songwriter ladies, but also there's a criticism within there too, because they get to sort of in his mind be both sort of powerful and oppressive and vulnerable and sort of seen and taken care of. That's his, in his mind. And in in the show, even in debating these things, he is the full range. Yes, and that's the strange loop of it all. Because that's sort of the loop of the show in many ways, is that he spends the whole time up until the last possible second being like, I right. have to change, I have to change, I have to change, I have to change. And then he realizes, oh, maybe I don't need changing. And when he realizes that, he changes. Right. But by two-thirds of the way through the show, Usher hasn't given up any of these forces yet. He's still navigating calls from his parents who are wondering if he's still gay and if he's making any money yet. He's accepted a job that's basically his worst nightmare, which is to ghostwrite a Tyler Perry gospel musical. In case you were wondering, Michael himself actually loves the work of white girl singer-songwriters like Liz Fair. He doesn't like the work of Tyler Perry. What is the criticism of it? Sort of like, era as like, sort of... Could you kind of explain what Usher is fighting? Well, I mean, on one level, I mean, I just think dramaturgically, it like does not hold up. It always falls apart for me <laughs> and for Usher. But also, there's a component to to one part of it that was very specific, which is that I saw his 2013 film, Confessions of a Marriage Counselor, that has this message in it that's, I feel really irresponsible around HIV and AIDS. Mm. And that just hit me very hard because there's a lot of people in the Black community for whom HIV AIDS has been a death sentence. And then what happened was in my own life, a very dear friend of mine passed away three years ago because he Mm. had been sort of hiding his diagnosis for a decade and, and a lot of that was due in part to a lot of these, this kind of messaging. So in the gospel scene that I mentioned at the top, Usher is embodying this message that he knows is hateful to him. And he's participating in a type of theater that he hates, but he's doing it anyway. And we as the audience have been invited into Usher's mind. Michael actually thinks of the audience as the seventh thought, in addition to the six actors on stage. 
So when we can't decide if we like the gospel scene or we hate it, if we should clap or if we shouldn't, we're asked to do what Usher does. Hold two things at once. Live with the discomfort. And in turn, we are also in the strange loop. I'm always thrilled by just watching people respond to the different... There's a lot of reference points within the show mm-hmm. and a lot of sort of attitudes and modes and expressions that are sort of tailored to one audience and then another and then another. And like, it's all mixed up together. And then you're all learning about, you know, how to take in a gospel play throughout the piece. And then you see a gospel play right? and everybody is invited to participate in that in a certain way. And that for me is part of, of pulling the audience even further into the loop of Usher's selfhood and Mm. really putting the audience like in his sort of mind. And it's one of my favorite parts of the show because it it literally does put it totally in your hands. Literally in your hands. Yeah. And um, I did that because Usher is trying to show people what it's like. And for me, as Michael R. Jackson, what it's like to be a Black gay man growing up in a religious family and in a religious, you know, community, my experience of it was that it was beautiful, beautiful music. And I loved, I always loved the singing was my favorite part. And I played piano for choirs while I was growing up. But it also was like, you get these like terrible messages about sexuality and and gayness and, and so forth. And so both those things are mixed up together. Right. And that's what it feels like. It feels like I want to enjoy this, but it's hard. It's, it's ugly. It's beautiful. It's yeah. all of it. A Strange Loop took 18 years to write, from the first monologue to its off-Broadway launch. Then the team had to wait two years for Broadway because of COVID. Before I let him go, I wanted to ask Michael to reflect on that experience. There's a lot of the musical that sort of critiques Broadway and also is a bit of a love letter to it. I'm curious if you think that... Broadway has changed since you began writing the musical? Um, um, that's always such a hard question for me to assess because the answer is like, yes, in a certain sense, like, right. but no in other ways. And also it remains to be seen. Right. You know, so. Okay, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, you know, the season right now has been sort of an unprecedented number of, works specifically by Black authors that had made it to Broadway. But I would also point to the off-Broadway season that A Strange Loop was in, though nobody really talked about that, in my my view, and what that meant or didn't mean. And so that's why I'm like, I feel all this stuff is kind of in the eye of the beholder. It's why I'm always banging the drum for we have to actually evaluate the quality of the works. Because if you just sort of go is it enough of us? You're right. never going to really be able to um, to measure what quote-unquote change means, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Like, we have to, like, have robust conversations, criticism, dialogues about what the art pieces actually are. Otherwise, I mean, I don't normally like to be this crude, but, like, otherwise, we're just sort of objects on an auction block. Mm. And I don't think that anybody really wants that. And I don't think that it does anything to move the needle forward in terms of actual representation. But this is where my bias is because I spent 18 years working on one thing. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, Michael, thank you for your work and your time. This was a real pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak with you. A Strange Loop is on Broadway through November 6th. Michael's next show, which is called White Girl in Danger, is expected to be out early next year. ask a food lover to name the best cities in the world for restaurants, it's likely they'll mention the capital of Denmark, Copenhagen. It's become this epicenter of the modern fine dining scene with a huge proportion of the world's best restaurants. My colleague Imogen West Knights was there recently for a story. She ate at a Nordic Korean restaurant called Kone. The food is almost to a degree sort of incidental, like the food is while you're there, But so much of the feeling of the luxury comes from everything else. It's the crockery, it's the furniture, it's the lighting, it's the music, it's the choreography of the the waiters. And I do mean choreography. They arrive at exactly the right time. They know exactly when everything's supposed to be going to each table. The day after Imogen's night of indulgence, she saw a very different scene. She was actually in Copenhagen to investigate the back of house at other restaurants. Because there are two stories running here in tandem. One's coming from the dining room, and the other, less public one, is happening in the kitchen. So Imogen met with someone who worked in the industry. To be clear, we don't know which restaurant her source worked at, but it wasn't Cone. The morning after you went to this beautiful meal, you met with an employee. And um, can you tell us what they told you? Yeah, they told me about punishing work hours and struggling to feed themselves mm. and having the time to do anything other than work. I think it was just one one of the one of the most sort of moving and representative moments of my reporting was that, you know, we came to the about halfway through talking and they looked down at their empty mug and were like, this is the only thing that I let myself do is have a cup of coffee on my day off because I can't afford any other luxuries. Wow. Yeah, it really sort of hit home especially after having, like, I was still full of that food, being like, wow, what what cost did my enjoyment come at? Can you tell me about the fine dining scene in Copenhagen in yeah. general? Sort of what is its reputation? So 15, 20 years ago, Danish food wasn't really a thing. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of got single-handedly created by Klaus Meyer and René Redzepi, who are two chefs in Copenhagen, who launched this new food movement called New Nordic, which was sort of hyper-local, focused on sustainable ingredients from the Nordic region. And they set up a restaurant called Noma, which is a portmanteau of Nordisk marked um, Nordic food. Mm. Um, And it was this massive runaway success, kind of reinvigorated not only the Danish food scene, but the world food scene and has kind of spread its tentacles all over the world now. And now, like, I think a quarter of tourists who go to Copenhagen are there primarily for the food. Mm. Um, and Noma has been the world's best restaurant, I think, three times. I think five. Five, five, yeah, five. It's been five times. And it is officially right now the it world's best It is right restaurant. now the world's best restaurant. So here's the picture. There's Noma, the crown jewel of the food scene. There's Geranium, which is the world's second best restaurant, which is also in Copenhagen. And then there are a handful of other Danish restaurants further down the list. 
Selma, Juno, Alouette. It's food heaven for tourists. And with the tourists have come restaurant workers who move to Copenhagen from around the world to learn from the best. Often they come to do these three-month internships that are unpaid. They're called stagiaires, and it's called doing a stage, doing this sort of unpaid internship thing. It's super common in the restaurant world. Um, it exists everywhere. Uh, and people come from all over the world to do it in Copenhagen because Copenhagen food is so celebrated. Many of these workers stay in the dining system after their stage, and they're just now starting to speak out about what it's like. Imogen spoke to 30 people from around the restaurant industry, most of whom asked to stay anonymous. They told her about sexual harassment, homophobia, dangerous work conditions, and in some instances, physical violence. But the most common thread across most of these stories was mental and physical exhaustion. That probably comes as no surprise if you've ever worked in a restaurant. It's built into the fabric of the service industry all the way down to its daily routine. If you work at a fine dining restaurant in Copenhagen, what is a day like? You know, what's the grind? So let's take like a hypothetical bad one. Then you might get in in the morning early to help set up your station, unpaid, you know, additional to your hours. And then you might work midday to two in the morning and go home, sleep a little bit, come back, do the same thing the next day. And the atmosphere that people described in some of these places is almost intolerable, really. Like people would talk about waking up in the morning and just feeling just this dread in their body of having to go back to these environments where at any moment they might be subject to a screaming abuse or, I mean, and physical violence as well. I mean, people kept talking about being kicked at work. Mm. I was like, that's kind of weird and playgroundy to me. Like, why are they kicking each other? That's so strange. And then I, uh, the penny dropped eventually that a lot of these kitchens are open kitchens. Mm. So the only place you can hurt somebody without the guests seeing is by kicking them in the legs. Wow. And people said that sometimes people would crouch down and punch people in the legs, like crazy stuff. This can be self-perpetuating. Because think about it. If a chef learns their trade in a toxic environment, they bring it into their own restaurants and so on and so on. Imogen kept hearing similar stories with similar language. So they talked about it being like a cult. They talked about it being mm. like the military. Yeah, I was really struck and kind of disturbed by the number of people who said that they thought the system of chefs learning bad behavior in the kitchen and revisiting it on the people lower down then when they have their own places, like families when children are victims of abuse who then go on to commit abuse, which is like yeah. a really extreme way of talking about it, but actually I think is just defiably extreme. This is an industry with high commitment and low margins, which creates a cycle. There are long hours, which make staff sick. But then taking sick leave means you'll miss your shift, which will force more work on your colleagues. So no one has a day off. If you're doing a stage, the unpaid internship, you can work up to 16 hours a day. Those types of days are common at Noma. So Imogen, can you tell me about the system of people who are coming to work in these restaurants in Copenhagen? Like, lay it out. Who's mm. working? What do they do? What do they do? Um, so I spoke to people who are from South America and Asia and all over Europe who often will save up working in kitchens in their home countries and come to Copenhagen and self-finance this three-month period. And... 
it varies very much by restaurant what they're actually doing. Um, but at its worst, it can be you get put on one element of one dish in a fine dining restaurant and you're, you know, smearing sauce for 16 hours a day. Restaurants are known to be hard to work in. But what really stands out in this story is that this is Denmark. Denmark is seen as a worker's utopia. I was really surprised when I read your story that this was happening in a country that's so well known for happiness Mm. and welfare. Um, And I'm curious, you know, why you think that is. Is it that the people working in these restaurants are often not Danish, that they're coming to work there? Is it something else? It is strange because labor laws are pretty tight in Denmark. And generally, I mean, as across all of Scandinavia, people don't work very long hours and they're usually pretty well remunerated for it. But the hospitality industry has kind of been siloed from that, um, partly, I think, because, you know, someone put it to me that it's very undanish to be the best at something. This is like a cultural thing they have. So then they had something that was the best mm. and people are reluctant to do anything that would disrupt that ecosystem like demanding that people get their 37.5 hours of work rather than 60 or whatever it is that some people are working. Um, and the trade unions aren't very strong and also it's all happened so quickly. I think 20 years for a whole massive industry to build up is not so long Yeah, and that a lot of... There's some catching up to do, I think, for the legal system to understand how people are actually working in this industry and how they can be protected. Did you get a reaction from, like, the people in Denmark that are meant to regulate this industry? What what I mostly had from Danish, I spoke to some Danish journalists who know the food scene very well, and they were like, yeah, people are just not that interested in talking about this because it's the golden goose. They don't want to destroy Mm. this amazing industry that's been built in Denmark. In Denmark, most roads lead back to René Redzepi of Noma. One of the big offenders seems to be René Redzepi himself, the best chef in the world, this huge name. Um, What are some of the allegations that were made against him? So Redzepi is interesting because, you know, he didn't invent the figure of the like screaming chef and right. the, he's a product of that whole culture himself and with, he was very young when he started no he was like 25 he's interesting because he has kind of run out a, ahead of a lot of this stuff and admitted in certain forums that he is or can be verbally aggressive has physically assaulted people in his kitchens and has made a good bit of noise about how he's changing Here's Red Zeppi talking to a British magazine called The Upcoming in April of this year. I had some years where, where I was very angry and I became the thing I said I would never be. And so for me to have a moment, almost like an epiphany, to say I need either to change this or uh, I, I'm leaving, I'm gone, you know, I have to finish and then starting to implement the change. Mm-hmm. That is the biggest lessons I've learned, and it has been the biggest reward as well. And I think, to be fair to him, I think that that's all true. Mm-hmm. But across the industry, there's a way to go. You know, I spoke to someone who was like, oh, yeah, Rene doesn't hit people anymore. 
like that like it's all over because he doesn't hit people I was like okay, is that the, is that the bar the bar's on the floor I should say that Noma is making changes as Imogen was reporting the story it announced that it would be paying interns next year but this is just one change in one restaurant this seems sort of like this perpetual problem that there could be individual Restaurants that do it better, individual things mm. that happen, but the whole system still seems to be sort of plagued. Do you have a sense from your reporting of whether there are models that are better or of just what would need to change? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I'd asked a lot of people what they thought should be done about any of this. And it's difficult because the system has been in place for so long. But I was thinking of a column that Jay Rayner wrote in The Observer about paying more for our food. Mm -hmm. Because we're all very used to being able to go out for a meal and you can choose to spend not very much and get served food outside of your home or you can choose to spend loads of money. But the one thing that we're kind of allergic to is prices rising. Mm -hmm. We don't want to pay too much for those things. But I think... We are probably generally paying too little. Yeah. I wrote a piece last summer about chefs doing good and what it means to do good. And um, some of the chefs that I spoke to for that piece were like, it's a hard industry. And if you really want to be a chef and you really want to learn and you really want to build this skill, then you got to work 80-hour weeks and you got to like be all in and you want to ask your sort of chef for advice. And I want that from my employees and my employees want to work fewer hours. And they, you know, the the plus side of that is that everybody deserves good mental health, et cetera. And the downside of that is that that sort of passion gets lost. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I asked quite a lot of chefs whether they thought that it was uh, an integral part of learning to be a chef, these really long hours and intense working environment. And most of them said no. I mean, Mm. most of them said, well, that is how I had it. But there's nothing inherent about making food that means you have to have this terrible pressure cooker thing and that you have to make people work all these hours. It's... It feels very intimately linked because it has been that way for a long time. But actually, that's a choice that is being made in restaurants. A lot of people were really, really committed to making things different. And there are plenty of restaurants who do it differently. And it's not a necessity, I don't think. Yeah. Thank you so much, Imogen. Thank you. the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. We love hearing from you. Please do keep in touch. You can reach out to us and say hi in a few ways. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I put a lot of behind the scenes podcast stuff on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT, including 50% off a digital subscription and a really great deal on FT Weekend in print every Saturday. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link. 
I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Neve Rowe is our intern. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And thanks go as ever to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Please take care, have a great weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.